You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. It's time for straight talk about diversity, frank questions, honest answers, and real insights. It's Diversity Straight Up with your hosts, Sadika Vodka of Nikea Diversity Consulting and Anthony Arrington of top rank professional and executive search firm. Diversity Straight Up is a Corridor Business Journal podcast brought to you by Collins Aerospace, the city of Cedar Rapids, and Alliant Energy. On today's episode, Suzanne McCormick, U.S. President of United Way Worldwide. Some things that we can do right off are, um, you know, bringing trainings to our network very quickly around, for example, unconscious bias. That's something we want to do. How to have courageous conversations. And so I've got some corporate funders who want to sort of figure out what they can do. And I'm going to ask them to make it possible for me to bring this training to my whole network. We'll be right back. At Collins Aerospace, we believe that fostering an inclusive environment makes our employees feel valued. It also helps our business succeed. By encouraging diverse viewpoints in the workplace, we're redefining futures. It's why we proudly support the Corridor Business Journal's diversity podcast, Diversity Straight Up. Diversity Straight Up is sponsored by the city of Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids is a welcoming and vibrant city, encompassing unique attractions, exciting and diverse events, specialty shopping, a dynamic art scene, and a large variety of restaurant and nightlife options. You'll find that Cedar Rapids offers one of the best places to live, work, and play in the Midwest. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Diversity Straight Up. I'm your co-host, Sarika Bakta. And I'm Anthony Arrington. Today's guest is Suzanne McCormick. She's the U.S. President of United Way Worldwide. And um, we are going to be discussing recent events with COVID-19 and the social injustice around George Floyd and the movement uh, that we're seeing globally. We did do two segments with her because we did record with her a few months ago right before COVID-19 hit. But before we get to that, we like to start our show off with a hot topic. Uh, and this hot topic segment we call Something's on My Mind. Something's on my mind. So, what's on my mind today, Sarika, uh, is police reform. Um, we, we've watched, uh, you know, a, a gentleman get killed at the hands of a, of a police officer. Um, using tactics that we we know are are inappropriate and illegal um you know and as a black man um it's been very disturbing it's been disturbing for the entire country um but for someone who's um experienced being pulled over by the police and wondering what what will happen to me and 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 will will something happen to me and and how to think and remembering all the things i was told about being pulled over it's been very difficult for for, for me personally um, to deal with that. And I think I'm at a point now where I'm, I'm ready to, to help solve the problem. How do we help provide solutions? So help me, Sarika. What do we do? What are your thoughts? Well, when you're thinking about the systemic inequities, um, they've, they're in the institutions. 
And over time, they just get compounded over and over and over. And then you have a culture that could become very toxic at times. And um, I think that there is inherent need for police reform. And I know that there is uh, language information about, you know, defunding police. Uh, but I think that police reform is, des- is definitely necessary. I think that um, when you're looking at um, how do you make an impact and you know that it's your tax dollars that are going into the good community work that is needed to protect and serve our community members. This is where I think we need to look at budget allocations. And I'm always about being more proactive versus reactive. And I think more funding needs to go into communities that need it to create that equitable playing field. I also think that with the funding, we also need to look at how do you create good relationships um, with police officers and community members. And so I think that we need to do more from be proactive from the front end yeah. than having to worry about from the back end. I really think that yeah. police reform is necessary. And honestly, I cannot believe that you would have someone, you have a workplace culture where new officers feel as if they're not able to speak up to veteran officers or say that that behavior is not appropriate. I think there's just a lot from the workplace culture that we need to do um, across the board there. I think we got to call it out and you're, and you're right. I think, um, the, the reforms have to be radical. Um, I think that's where we're at, and and I think you're hearing the screams of our future when you think about uh, when you think about the the conversations and the and the, the the sense of urgency around this topic. It's being driven by a, a young demographic that's so diverse and so active and so hungry. And I and I think if I were to try to find a silver lining in this, uh, it would be in a solution. Uh, it would be uh, active citizens. Uh, in the process and what we are seeing right now uh, I believe are active citizens and, and and sitting on the sidelines does not get work done and I and if there was a solution or a silver lining out of this it's really pleasing to see um, young folks stepping up and demanding change um, because they're our future and that's the demographic that will be running the world um, and, and that they should have a voice in in, in this they are present. They're yeah. not even the future. They're making difference now. And I'm seeing multi-generations that are out there yeah. being active Good citizens. Um, there may be, you know, predominantly more younger, but I'm seeing across the board, across all yeah. generations, across all race and ethnicities where people are standing right. up for humanity. So get active. That's the, that. That's a, we all got to get active. We all got to play a part in this. Uh, but we're in some times, we're in some troubled times and we, we've got to get through these. We could talk about this all day long. Gosh. <laughs> we got to go, Erica. We got to get into our show, huh? <laughs> we do. I have a heavy heart and Absolutely. a heavy mind here, but I know that my feet is going to move yes, into it action. Is. Mine too. Okay, now on to our guest. We have Suzanne McCormick with us. Let's see what's on our guest's mind. What's on our guest's mind? Suzanne McCormick was named U.S. President at United Way Worldwide in June of 2019. In this role, she's responsible for helping the 1,100 local United Ways across the U.S. trailblaze in the philanthropic space to build more resilient, inclusive, and sustainable communities. That includes leading in equity, tackling community problems with innovative and systemic solutions, and driving the ongoing digital transformation. McCormick came to United Way Worldwide from Tampa, Florida, where she spent five years as President and 
and CEO for United Way Suncoast, one of Florida's largest United Ways. She began her nonprofit leadership career at the International Center of New York and then CEO for both the American Red Cross of Southern Maine and People's Regional Opportunity. McCormick holds a BA in political science from Duke University and is an alumni of the Peace Corps, where she taught English in Thailand. Well, Suzanne, with COVID-19, it is more apparent now more than ever how the health, education, and financial inequities of certain of our communities are being compounded, adding on to the existing social and economic disparities, especially here in the U.S. And United Way Worldwide is a global nonprofit partner. So how have you internally been able to do a business pivot during these challenging times? And what are some key differences in these inequities that you're seeing in the U.S. versus some of the other countries? United Way Worldwide operates in? It's been interesting as we've looked at, uh, you know, how we operate in communities and, and what we've what we've been seeing in the midst of the COVID response. I actually believe that we were built for this moment. We're an organization that's always sat at the intersection of a group of uh, nonprofits and community leaders and corporations in the public sector. And so our ability to stand in that space in a leadership role and pull together those different sectors to, to meet the needs of communities, all communities across the United States right now in the face of COVID, um, I feel like our relevancy has never been stronger. And, and we're really acting upon the principles um, that we were built for. I, I, I know the areas, uh, without question, COVID uh, has you know, started to shine, um, you know, a, a glaring spotlight on the inequities um, with the disproportionate number of communities of color um, being affected. And so that has really elevated our commitment and our focus and our resolve um, to lead with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, around the country, um, I, I, I don't know that um, the issues of equity have been as, uh, I, I know they're there. Um, I don't think that there has been the social conscious um, focused on it in the same way that we've seen it in the United States. However, having said that, um, you know, in the recent in the recent weeks following the death of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and Christian Cooper, um, we are seeing the world recognize the inequities and, and doing so in a vocal way. So I think globally it's there, but it's been very pronounced in the United States. That's a good segue as we as we we talk about uh, the, the the recent events. One being uh, obviously COVID nineteen and the more recent uh, event with um, uh, George Floyd uh, that has. Uh, spark the, the the country to action around uh, police reform etc et uh, as a leader of a of a non-profit organization who primarily serves underserved populations how, how are you feeling personally um, about the events as you have to reflect as a leader um, because it's your obviously part of your role is to um, continue to communicate and, and and create that space at, at your organization can you talk to me about how you feel how you're feeling personally about it and how you've been able to handle that as a leader. Thank you for asking that, Anthony, because I, I, I think one of the most important things that we all need to be doing right now is to have these honest, vulnerable conversations with one another about this. Yeah. Uh, when I reflect on it, um, I think what was one of the most poignant moments for me personally was last Monday evening 
um, I pulled together a, a, a Zoom call with um, a group of our, it, it, we just, it's a group that is self-formed, it's called the Alliance, but it's our Black Professional Leaders Alliance. And it's a group of about 50 CEOs of local United Ways who are, um, who are Black or leaders of color. And we invited them into a conversation along with the CEOs of um, some of the, the, the markets that had been most impacted with the protest at that point. I mean, we've, we're seeing a lot more now. And then we spent about 90 minutes together and, and I was really there just to listen. And, you know, the whole first part of that time together was people supporting each other, um, talking about how they're feeling. And for me, you know, as a white leader, it was humbling um, to listen to my black colleagues um, and to understand the, you know, the pain that they're carrying. And we're all carrying pain, but I know that it's different. And it was it was very humbling for me personally. Uh, and it's, it, you know, continued to elevate for me personally. Um, I will never have the lived experience. And as right. empathetic as I try to be, mm-hmm. um, it will never be the same for me. So that was... And I will say that was very inspiring in, um, and motivating for me to think about what do we do now as an organization in the aftermath of that. Yeah, I was going to ask as you thought about that, were there some takeaways? You know, was there a nugget or two of, of um, information or, or feeling that you were able to take away and, and say, you know, I, I think we have an opportunity to do X. And maybe there wasn't. I'm just wondering if. Oh, there is. It's all I've been working on today, Anthony. Uh, I've been a part of the day with our executive Absolutely. management team, taking yeah. them yeah. through our current thinking. You know, as I said, I think, you know, in response to COVID, we were built for this. In response yeah. to um, um, the, the protests around uh, uh, access to justice um, and, and issues of equity. Um, as I, you know, when we talked before, we had already elevated that as a priority. And for us, particularly right. in areas of, um, you know, focusing on access for all in education, financial stability, and health, um, I think there's an opportunity for us to really call out racial equity in those key pillars of our work. Um, mm-hmm. It's also, I've also been really reflecting on on our organization at United Way Worldwide and our network of local United Ways. There's still an enormous enormous amount of work that our local leaders need to do with that personal reflection. Right. And uh, just got off the phone about an hour ago um, with one of my colleagues. And, you know, we've been, we've been trying to, to look for some short-term action steps, but mm. also uh, this cannot be a short play. You know, this has to be long-standing strategy with real commitment. And I know some things that we can do right off are, um, you know, bringing um, trainings to our network very quickly around, for example, unconscious bias. That's something we mm-hmm. want to do. The history mm-hmm. of police, um, how to have courageous conversations. And so I've got some corporate funders who want to sort of figure out what they can do. And I'm going to ask them to to make it possible for me to bring this training to my whole network, not just my CEO leaders, but their board leaders. And I will say, we're also looking long-term, you know, how do we, I'll have another call with this group with our, with our, with our black leaders next Monday, um, because a lot of our local United Ways have already stepped into the space of taking a stand on police reform or justice reform or access to justice. And um, we want to elevate those stories. Um, We want to help more of our communities 
have the courage to step into those conversations with their mayors or their city councils um, and, and to, you know, to lead in that space, but with humility. Alliant Energy is a place where I can create the future, where my skills, creativity, and new ideas make a better tomorrow. I help deliver the energy powering moments that matter to you. It's where we care about the environment and our neighbors, a place where my talents and skills grow. My job isn't a job, it's my passion, my place, my purpose, because I am energy. See how you can put your energy to work at AlliantEnergy.com careers. I'm very curious about your experience in Thailand. You were there for two years. You taught English there. Can you share with our listeners that experience and also any biases that you had preconceived going into it, and how did any of those biases get shattered? I will say serving in the Peace Corps was, without a doubt, the best educational experience of my life. Well, there are many since then, but it was really one of the most um, life-shaping, I would say. I went in as, you know, an American college student and sort of born and raised to think America's the greatest, you know, country in the world, and by many regards it is. But what I discovered is that um, the Thai culture was one I knew nothing about and, you know, very different, very different religious beliefs. Well, not entirely uh, different, but I just came to appreciate the beauty of that culture. And it taught me that um, while we're different, it doesn't make us better. And so it just, it humbled me. Um, it also was my first experience actually living in a situation where I felt like a minority. And so I can talk a little bit more about like how that, how I've come to actually appreciate that even more. Um, so I'm, I'm a tall white woman in a, in a very rural village in, uh, our village was close to the north e northeastern border of Laos, so very, very rural. It's mm -hmm. like the rice oh, paddies. Okay. And um, so I'm a tall, white woman, and um, the word for foreigner in Thai is farang. And everywhere you go, like whenever you walk in anywhere, all you hear is farang, farang, farang. And it would, be, it would get maddening sometimes, especially towards the end of my service when I felt like I lived there and I could speak the language and I would listen to them talk about me on the bus or, you know, a group of people talking about the farang. And um, so I you know, I had this experience of living, feeling like the person who was different. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say, you know, as I've moved into my in, into my work now, I thought that gave me sort of street cred to be able to talk about diversity and inclusion. But what I've come to realize is um, even in that instance or in that situation, I still had privilege because I could have walked away from that situation at any point in time. Like I could have, I could have said, I can't stand this anymore. Like I don't want to be different anymore and have left. Um, and I've come to appreciate that that was still a privilege. There are so many people in our communities who feel that way and they can't walk away from it. And they don't, so it's, it's, I used to think it gave me street cred. Now it's just made me appreciate even more. Even in that moment, I had privilege that so many people don't. That's a very interesting uh, aspect and take on the privilege where you said I could just easily just move and go. Never thought of it or heard of it. In yeah, that no, no, we were talking I think, a couple times. We've had conversations about when you go back to India or when, as a white person's over in India, they, they are a minority, but we never talk about their privilege. They can, they you can, can leave. leave. They and can leave. Yeah. 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 And so that's great. And it sounds like it's shaped some of your thought processes later in life. And that's, that's, what I was interested in is it's interesting that you've tied that now to 
what you do. I say to my team, I will forever be a student of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I can I, I can be an ally, and I can seek to understand, yeah. but I will forever only be a student. Awesome. Well, me and Sarah, we were talking about generational diversity and, and uh, young, old, and, and uh, obviously, I know one of the, uh, in, in your position, I understand one of your key uh, charges is to really drive the technological advances and, dr and drive uh, the digital transformation. And so with the change in the, in the way people access data, and the way people donate, uh, particularly a uh, younger generation are more technologically uh, inclined than maybe older, how are you thinking about your transformation, thinking digitally or otherwise about how to engage that younger population who you know are gonna be your future donors? United Way is over 130 years, and I would say it's fair to say that we are behind on moving into sort of the 21st century. Um, we are working really hard right now to build the capability of our local United Ways across the country to be able to engage, you know, we say engage digitally, but what that really means is being able to gauge people through the channels where they live now, which is all through social media. Right. You know, it is through Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. And well, not fa my kids would say not Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, people, it's, it's as much as people have, especially younger generations, their expectation is, is that you're going to meet them, you're going to find them, you're going to engage with them through their smartphone. And if we're not able to be there and engaging them, we're going to miss the opportunity. And I would say we've already missed the opportunity in some ways. And so we're trying to, to work really quickly to build the digital capability of our local United Ways so that we do make it easier for people to connect and find us and hear to be able to communicate with the things that they care about, not just the things that we traditionally say they should care about. I think that's been another learning of United Ways is you have to be much more adaptive and um, individual than, you know, our, our model was built on being able to talk to organizations, and that's that's really changed. It's a challenge for us, but it is a great opportunity. We're still we're still old too. Like mm -hmm. we are, our average donor is about 51 years, and the average donor in the United States is 38. So. We got to continue to get younger Some and more, more adaptable. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because one of the key drivers of diversity is technology. Hence the question that we're asking. And as you indicated, that um, your average donor is a little bit um, older. And we also see in our urban and rural communities how we're seeing such an aging population. Mm -hmm. We also know the younger generation. Their giving motivation is drastically different than some of these other generations. Yes, it's more cause related. Can you share about how you envision connecting more with um, the younger generation as well as the multicultural communities because that's changing the face of the demographics, at least from the U.S. perspective? Without question. Well, I think, you know, what, the one thing that we say about United Way, and I think this, this, is, this has always been true and I think it holds true now, is that our superpower is, is that we're really local. Like, we understand local communities, and if we're, if we're doing what we should be doing, we should be focusing on the most relevant issues in our local communities. And so I think that that does set us, you know, in a place where where people would want to engage with us. If we can demonstrate that 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 we're tackling hard things, specific things. Um, I, I think our challenge has been in the past that um, 
our, our structure was, you know, give to United Way, trust us to make decisions for you mm -hmm. on where to invest your philanthropic dollars, and we'll tell you what we did with it maybe sometime down the, the road. Now people want to connect. They want to know immediately what's happening. They want to, and they don't just want to give. They want to volunteer. They want to be engaged in something. So I think that is our opportunity. Um, because we, we know local communities, we do have sort of a big span of what we can focus on, we can connect to what people care about. And we do have the ability to do more than just take their money. We do have the ability to connect them either through advocacy or volunteerism. Um, so I think the potential is there. We just have to continue to push ourselves to to engage differently. Um, we, we haven't had to work as hard as we have to work now, but that's because people can get access to all kinds of information, and so it's a much more competitive environment. I want to expand on your, your comment about um, diversity amongst volunteerism because I know that that's a challenge locally and I'm imagine, I know it's a challenge globally so from from your perspective what do you think are some of the the initiatives or some of the 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 uh, approaches that that United Way can take to engage more diverse volunteers because the conversation becomes well just like the the private sector um, consumers want to buy and purchase from people that look walk talk and sound like them from a donor perspective, do you sense that? And, and if that's the case, what are some of the things that you, you may have in mind to, to kind of combat that? Well, I think, um, I, well, I should say diversity, equity, inclusion is, it's an imperative for us. And as we are thinking about how we transform as an organization, we are encouraging our local United Ways to put that just right at the very top, like a lens that they're going to look at all their work through. Because what I would say, as you said, um, the demographics are changing. And right. if we only look like one part of our community, we're only going to appeal to one part of our community. And and so we have to um, we have to invite all people into our community from our community into our work, um, especially those with lived experience in um, you know the challenges that we're trying to solve. Um, but I will say it's still it's a it's a it's a muscle that we're still building. I mean, again, I. I I'll just speak my mind. Like we're a 130-year-old organization. I mean, we're kind of an old white organization, mm -hmm. and so um, our efforts to recruit diverse, younger, younger, multi-ethnic um, mm -hmm. staff and volunteers is—it's um, top of mind. And um, we're only going to do it community by community. Yep. I can just say we recognize it. For me, I just—it's. It's the most beautiful thing about the country that we live in now is, you know, having rich experience in your everyday yeah. life. And yeah. um, but we still have, you know, like all organizations, stereotypes to break down. Yep. Um, but no, there's we have we have years to go, but we want to be a leader. It's great. You hit upon something that you said, OK, it is what it is. It's a white organization or it seems as if that is the case. What do you think you can do from a branding perspective to really move that dial and represent the organization and where the direction you want it to go? Well, I think there's some simple things we could do. I, I think I'll, I'll start with the harder and then I'll go to the simple. I think, and it's not harder, I think, you know, we need to be really intentional about what does our leadership look like in a community, both from a volunteer standpoint and from a staff standpoint. Because what your leadership looks like um, that demonstrates how you really, really are, whether you are true and embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, some of the United Ways that we have seen who have been very intentional, who have recognized, first of all, that they, they lack diversity, have been very intentional about um, opening up their organization to others, they're thriving because they have access now to all kinds of 
donors and volunteers that they didn't have in, in the past. I think some of the easy things we can do, um, as simple as, you know, you, like we look at the shift right now in the United States with the number of um, uh, Latinx. Like, are all our materials in Spanish? Is that, you know, first and foremost, if that's becoming the second language, and I would suggest that we have a long way to do go in that regard as well. Um, I'd say that's an easier thing. <laughs> or, or some would argue it's not an easy thing. But from a branding perspective, um, it's really, and, and I, I will tell you that just recently I heard feedback from one of our local leaders who is in um, the southern, southwestern part of the United States, and she was critiquing the fact that she still felt like some of our national branding materials, the only time that she sees someone um, uh, who is Hispanic or Latinx is when they are the person receiving help. Um, hmm. it, it's not apparent perhaps that they are the leader of the organization from either a volunteer standpoint or a staff standpoint. And that's really important feedback. And I think, you know, that could be said, that, that could be true of African-Americans mm -hmm. or Asians as well. That's very interesting how that perspective that they brought up, because yes, a lot of times you're thinking, oh, these multicultural communities are on the receiving side of the services. And in reality, a lot of times when you're thinking about nonprofit diversity, the conversation is always with the board diversity. And you're always starting there, I understand, from a leadership perspective mm -hmm. you want to, but then there's opportunities to talk about from the volunteer, besides board leadership, but donors and volunteers yeah. as well. Yeah. I think United Ways, too, also are in a unique position, uh, you know, as, a, as an investor into strategies and solutions in communities. How are we making investments in those organizations that are led by um, diverse leaders? Um, not just the traditional partners that we perhaps have invested in the past, but um, there, there's a United Way, for example, in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, Hoot hoot, you know, home of the Blue Devils. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give a shout. Got to get, gotta get that shout out out. Um, Raleigh Durham is doing some incredible work. They have um, uh, special grants that they make into young minority-led nonprofit organizations or impact organizations. And not only are they investing in the agencies to help grow the agencies, they also are investing in the leadership development of those leaders so that they can become better leaders in their community. It's it's an incredible program. Like there's lots of stuff that we can model. I think it just yeah. takes courage to try to do things differently. It does. Courage courage leadership courage. I, yeah. that's, I agree. Let's talk about you growing up as you mentioned earlier, tall, white, female. Um, talk about some experiences that you've had in, in in your life where you've had to face some some challenging situations that around diversity uh, that may have went against your value system. And and how did you deal with that? That is a hard question, Anthony. I mean, it's like it's a... I'll give you 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, we might be pausing on my answer here. Um, well, I, I'm, so in experience, I'll just speak most more recently sure. um, than not. Well, I, I should also say, like, my experience is um, my, my consciousness around difference, I feel, I guess, fortunate that started fairly young, like when I was in grade school. And I grew up in North Carolina, even though mm -hmm. I was born in Iowa. And I, um, I was in an integrated school district. And the first time that I noticed difference, because I'm going to start there because it yeah. still, it's, it, it still plays out today. Mm -hmm. The first time I really was conscious, conscious of difference was when I was in the fifth grade. I'd grown up in a middle-class white neighborhood, almost entirely white. And in fifth grade, I had, had to leave my sort of, you know, lovely 
Pleasanthood, like Pleasantville neighborhood mm-hmm. with lots of green grass yeah. and sidewalks and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And I was bused to um, my school for fifth and sixth grade about 45 minutes away. And what I realized on that first day of school is like I left this green, nice neighborhood and we went through downtown Wilmington, North Carolina. And eventually we started to go into another neighborhood. And the first thing that I was struck by was there wasn't there wasn't any brass there. It was like it was there was dirt and there was like asphalt, but it just wasn't it didn't look green to me. And we pull up to my school and it's in this middle of a very poor neighborhood that is predominantly African American. Mm-hmm. And so for two years, every day I'd leave like my neighborhood, go into this other neighborhood, and then and then every day I got to come back. And it made me question, like, why is my neighborhood so different? And mm-hmm. we didn't even have a playground. There was no grass during fifth and sixth grade. And that's the first time it became really apparent to me. And then when I got to junior high school, the reverse happened. I went back to a junior high school that was in a white neighborhood, and the kids that were bussed in were mostly African-American kids. So mm-hmm. you put, for two years, it was all white kids going into a black neighborhood, and then for three years, all black kids coming into a white neighborhood. And it was just, it made me really question this. And so fast forward to, you know, today, every day, not every day, but mm-hmm. um, when I was working in, in the Tampa area, um, there's a part of um, south of St. Pete, Florida, which is this lovely place, which is still just crushed under structural racism. And just the, the policies and procedures that were put in place way back when have kept some neighborhoods down. And, um, and so how do, you, how do you rally a community to try to, you know, to recognize that? And I think what's the most challenging where I see it still is to see people in power who deny that that. Mm-hmm. that it exists yes. when it's right in front of them like yes. they want to make every excuse yes. and um so just there's hard work to do there is and it's yeah so that was a long answer no, to it no i love that that was a great that was a great conversation <laughs> so it. It, it is a great conversation and i think it goes back to what Anthony and I continue to have these conversations, even offline, and sometimes I think, why don't we just record what we're saying, but how can you help a segment of the population that has blinders on to something that is right in front of their eyes? And I have the mindset that I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt. I will always go into that mindset. So they have these blinders on. Is it intentionally? Is it unconsciously? And then you have one side of the pendulum where they realize that, you know what, diversity is our word, is if you're white, that's not something that belongs to you. How do you, how do you manage that? How, yes, how, how do, do you, you? So I have, that, well, I mean, I have those conversations all the time. I, I, had a, I had a young, wonderfully talented young man work on my team, you know, in the last five years, and um, just well-educated, it served, it was in the um, great military career as well. And um, he just wouldn't, at first, wouldn't buy into the notion that there, like structural racism still exists. Mm. But part of it was he really had never been exposed to, there's, there's, great, there's great information out there now that mm. helps people see it. I mean, we're doing a lot of training with our team at United Way Worldwide, and um, I've, I've, I've been exposed to it for years now. But it's always so interesting to sit in a room and watch a bunch of people go, oh my God, like I, I really didn't realize that. So I think part of it is how the message is mm-hmm. brought. It, the blame, like, 
you're you're a privileged white man yeah. doesn't really work very yeah. well. Charging tactics. <laughs> we talked about yeah. that. Sometimes you have to have a charge conversation. Yeah. I said, well, no, that's going to just be a big old yeah. bomb that's going to blow yeah. up in your face, and it's going to alienate them even the more. How do you set the table first before we stuff ourselves full of this important yeah. food? That yeah. we're, I, you know, yeah. I've, I've had I've had some of those charge conversations with my husband and my son at some point in time too. They would say, well, there's not really disparities between you know what women are paid or men are paid, or I'm like, yes, there are. Oh, like, I had so, that conversation yeah. with my brother right. as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think it takes, I think, like, assuming good intent, assuming people don't know, um, but it does take respectful persistence, I would say, to continue to, it's like, forever and ever, I feel like I have to be a champion around that. Like, I can never not let that conversation happen if there's an opportunity. So as a leader in your role, obviously, you're very conscious of, of this need to change those mindsets. Have you had some examples of an individual or two where you've had that impact on them through through example or through um, putting them in situations where they had to uh, own up to the, the biases or the, the situations? Have you been able to help people? Well, I hope so. <laughs> um, gosh, I hope so. Uh, well, with this particular young man, I do think that he is, um, since then, he's much more open. And like we've had, you know, I've, I've sent him some articles and I've sent him some videos to watch. And so we engage in a different level of conversation now. Um, I think more often, I focus less on that and more on who is the next person I need to get yes. to, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I meant. Obviously, you probably had some impact yeah. on him. Do you feel that that's been a catalyst to, was there something you learned from that experience that says, you know what, the next time, the next individual, I, I'm going to continue to do this every, every opportunity I have to teach or to... I do try to do that. What I do find, however, though, is when you really, to get into the conversations around um, race equity, you do have to, I think, for, for many people, I think you have to be somewhat intellectual and pragmatic and be able to, like, let's talk about the facts yeah. and, like, take them back to um, some of the policy decisions that were made by our government and mm -hmm. others mm -hmm. that put these structures in place. Because right. once they see that, it's hard to deny. Mm -hmm. um, so that's always kind of fun, I think. Um, there are others, though. There's still too many who, you know, for they, they don't. They don't have to pay attention because their lives aren't affected, which makes me angry. Yeah. Well, you talk a lot about systems and processes. Are there any within the organization that you have seen that have created those type of barriers and you're looking at wanting to really kind of dismantle that? I, there's one in my organization now. I'm not going to name what the policy is, but it is, um, it's definitely, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful example of, um, Maybe it's unconscious bias that you make assumptions about what what your employees can and cannot do based on your lived experience, and then you make policies based on your lived experience versus understanding that what what you may or may not do, I mean, what may or may not work for you is not the same. It, a good example outside of my organization, which I heard recently, which I thought was a great example, is um, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Larry Goldman. He works with um, an organization on the west side of Chicago. They're doing a lot of neighborhood work and really lived experience with anchor institutions. And he was talking about they had a policy around um, tuition reimbursement. And so they thought it was they thought it was equitable because it was anybody in the organization could access tuition reimbursement. What they discovered was it wasn't equitable because some employees couldn't afford to prepay their tuition mm. and then be reimbursed. So that mm. was an assumption that someone had assets or credit that, that they could front something. Right. And so they changed the policy just to be 
free tuition. Like we'll just pay right out front, which I think that's a, it's nuanced, but it's a really good example yeah. of you think you're doing a good thing, but if you really start to unpeel it, it's not it's not equitable. It's yeah. equal, but it's not equitable. Right. Yes. Yeah. And there is a difference. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. We've had those conversations, Sadika and I, a, a lot about that difference between equality and equity. And the one there's a couple of red hairs that always stand up to me when I hear individuals say, um, I don't see color. But yeah, the last time you looked in the crayon box, it was there. <laughs> so yeah, that's it's 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 always refreshing to hear uh, leaders who are thinking like that. So I appreciate your your perspective. I want to talk a little bit about workplace culture and uh, how this could be applicable to United Way or just nonprofits in general. How do you help uh, underrepresented leaders thrive in an organization that for such a long time may have been predominantly uh, white? How do you help them succeed and knowing that change can be hard and perspectives can be different? Uh, I think a couple of things. One, I, I can talk about my experience at United Way Worldwide, which I'm very, I've been very impressed with, like the commitment, diversity, equity, inclusion internal to our organization. Um, our entire team has gone through race, equity, and inclusion training. Everyone's now going through um, uh, unbiased racism training. So that, like, but training is only an event. Mm-hmm. Um, but from from our employee engagement survey, um, really took a deeper dive into how. Um, those in our organization really feel about how they're being treated and have empowered them to make recommendations that are being implemented now in the organization. So I think that's one way is giving people a forum and a voice that's safe and they're not standing alone because I think the mistake that some organizations make and we've probably made it too is you know you have one voice of diversity equity inclusion and you put all the weight um, and all the expectation around leadership there where it's not fair and you're not by doing so you're not really you know um, elevating yeah. leadership in the rest of the organization. So I think you have to think beyond one person. One of the best pieces of advice that I have gotten from um, from one of our diverse employees is, um, for me personally, as as a as a white woman, it'd be better if I was a white man. Is I have a responsibility to be an ally for um, those who don't have the same opportunities that I do. And I have to be a voice, and I have to bring my voice because people will listen to me differently than they might listen to them. And so I think that's another, is to see your, it was coined sort of allyship, Mm -hmm. like my responsibility to be an ally to my colleagues who um, face much greater barriers than I do. Um, It's a a soft answer, but it's a real answer. I mean, to every day, how do you show up and, and, and champion because I, I have a voice in rooms that they don't currently have, and how do I, how do I try to change that? Yeah. I want to go back, I think, to a conversation that we had about uh, materials and translation. United Way is worldwide, so some of those materials are already probably translated with the worldwide umbrella, right? Or is that a... I'd still say it's an area of opportunity for okay. us. Yeah, okay. definitely. Just for example, um, uh, and I don't some of the some of the some of the things that some of our sort of national um, l- let me say this, sometimes some of our branding materials have really been developed even with just an American audience in mind. Okay. Like and and so even when you start to think about the translation even into Spanish, it either loses effect or it has the 
the opposite effect of what you want. And um, I'm just not sure that we have we, we certainly don't have the cultural competency that we need around all of our marketing materials. I think it's an area of, and I think that's probably true for a lot of, of nonprofits. Um, you know, the private sector probably has more resources to do it, but I think we probably haven't put enough attention on it. I know we haven't. Well, I think that's a really great yeah. insight to how you'd indicated that the audience that who has helped develop it may not be reflective okay. of the audience that you're looking for from a global perspective as well. And, and also from a younger perspective. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I constantly say, how many times do we shop around our materials to like the millennials who work down in digital services? We still you know, have that classic case of yeah. somebody does it and they're ready to send it out and it doesn't get- It could be well-intentioned. It could be well-intentioned, but it doesn't yeah. really get tested. It doesn't, it's exactly. like you skip it, it's so, e it, it, it's easier than we think. Yeah. We just need to test yeah. the messages. Very true. But I think sometimes they think that time is of the essence and it just move, 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 yes. and you lose the opportunity. When in reality, if you take the diligent time to do it, you're going to reap the return on investment Without a little question. bit more. Absolutely. Yeah. You've been at uh, United Way in this position as the president of the U.S. operations. It'll be about a year in July here. That's correct. So, Suzanne, if you had to grade yourself... In terms of um, equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement, what do you think? What grade do you think you'd give yourself? Well, at first of all, I think I might have to give the grade to the to the opportunity. Um, the The position has afforded me an opportunity, um, for lack of a better way, to for a for a stage to be more of a leader around this topic, um, because we have said it's really important for us as an organization, and so. My job is to help our, our network continue to transform, to be relevant, to be engaging. And um, so I have this amazing opportunity to, to get to champion diversity, equity, inclusion at a greater scale than I was able to do when I was just serving in a local community. So I give the opportunity an A+. Plus. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm always a low grader, and I'm, and I'm getting ready to do performance reviews, so I want my team to know, you know, like, yeah. I, you know, I always, I'm always really conservative. So, you know, I give myself a C. You know, like, it's middle of the road, and, but I'm, I'm excited to, I want to be, I'll always be a student, so I'm never going to be A+. Plus, um, but I want to be better than average. If there are one yeah. or two nuggets that you had to, to think about to improve your grade, because, you know, my teacher always gives me tips to improve uh -huh, my grade. Yeah. So uh, what, what tips would you give yourself to, to improve your grade? I think, uh, I don't think I've been as strategic, and part of it sort of feels like I haven't had the time yet, but that's always an excuse, right? Um, is there an opportunity for me to be more strategic in thinking about parts of our network or parts of our country um, that are crying for more leadership around this, and can I can I help lend my voice in those communities or those markets? Um, Which markets? I, I'm Would sure I'm not know the markets yet. I think that's, okay. that's the point. Is right. I don't think I've spent the time. Fair enough, I haven't yes. spent the time to really understand where are the places that need it most. My experience has been we have um, we have an annual equity summit. Well, this will actually just be the second year, and you know, not surprisingly, it's the 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 people who come from our network to the equity summit are the people who are already doing the work mm -hmm. around equity, inclusion, and, yep. and diversity. And so it's that's the easy work, you know. So how do you move beyond to the markets that need it but are more, like, reticent? So right. I think that's that's my opportunity yeah. in the coming years. How do you preach outside of the choir? Exactly. So mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Great. Okay, I think we've reached uh, the What's on Our Listeners' Mind segment here. 
what our listeners are thinking right now. So we've got a question. We've okay. got a question from Michelle. Uh, and uh, we'd like our, our, our guests to answer the question. Um, and it's, it's not directed at you. It's just a question that we pulled up. So I have a coworker with a visible disability. And I am curious about his disability, but I'm not sure how to ask or if I will offend him. What advice do you have for me uh, about how to talk to this individual? Oh, that's a good question. Who's it from? This is from Michelle. My initial response is talk to them like you'd talk to any other uh, of your coworkers and get to know them. I think people share about themselves once they, once they know you and trust you. So I would start with simply building a relationship and trust. And then I would imagine over time, if trust is built, you would find yourself in a place to be able to have conversations that um, you would never be able to have if you don't do that first. So it's not a direct answer, but I think it's as realistic and yeah. practic practical as I can be. You yeah. know, it's, I would say, earn the right to ask hard questions through relationship building first. Mm, I like that, earn the right. Well, thank you, Michelle, for your comments and your questions. Please continue to submit them at info at diversitystraightup.com. So now it's time for our Diversity Thumbball Fun Times. Suzanne, you're going to enjoy this portion of it. Anybody can can your listeners like see what you're holding? They can't, so we've got to do a good job of our radio voice to describe it. So this is a what we call a diversity ball, and it's an icebreaker with a lot of diversity questions on it. So it's built like a soccer ball for our listeners, and uh, in each section of the ball, there are questions. And so... What we like to do in the studio is have a little ball fun and, and throw this around. And so I'll throw it to you. Okay. And when you catch it, whatever thumb lands left or right, lands on that question, you ask the question, and then you answer it. Okay. All right. So I'm, ask, I'm, I'm stating the question. I'm answering it yep. myself. Yes. Gonna, yep. and, and then I get to, then you get to play the game with you. Yeah, yes. You get to throw it really okay. hard. Okay. Especially at Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Name two ways in which men and women are treated differently. Um, well, I'll tell you one. This is old um, because I told you I was born in Iowa, and I just recently looked at a picture of my birth certificate. Um, and again, this is back in 1967. Um, my father's occupation was listed, but there was no space for our mother's occupation. Oh, interesting. Yeah. interesting. No, I mean, no things, things have changed. Um, and, you know, the other comment I, I made earlier, because I'm still trying to work on the boys in my house, is to understand that, um, that still opportunities for women in regards to position and pay are not the same as yes, men. very true. Yeah. So those are my two. Awesome. Okay. Is it my turn to talk? That's yours. Yes. Okay. Here it comes. <laughs> oh, this is a great question to piggyback off what uh, topic our listener had discussed, Michelle. What would be hardest about having an unseen difference or disability? I think maybe how someone would assume I may be able to do something. Yeah. And mm -hmm. potentially physically it may be extremely difficult for me to do so. I think that would be hard. Because as you had mentioned earlier, Suzanne, you have to earn that respect. And if they have not earned my respect, it'd be hard for me to communicate why I cannot do that job or that task to the best of my ability or to the 100% of what they think. Right. But I'm doing it to the best of my ability. Yeah. Yes. Good answer. Oh, good oh answer. thank you. Thank you. All right. Describe a time you witnessed discrimination. 
Oh man. How much time do How we much have? How much time do we have? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. So I'll give you I'll I the the one that first came to my mind. So I'll just give it to give it to you straight. Uh, when I was about 14 years old, um, one of my one of my best friends at the time uh, was a young white young white guy, and he lived on quote the other side of the tracks. But we both had these very cool mopeds, and he was a club member. And and I won't say the club, but he would invite me. He um, one day his dad said, you know, why don't you guys ride your mopeds up to the club and and have lunch? So I go up to the club, and we pull in. And, you know, I'm 14 years old. I'm just excited to be on my moped. We're going to go eat lunch. And we pull in, and there's a swimming pool full of people. And as soon as we pull down, a guard comes up, the employee, and says, uh, what are you guys doing? And uh, my buddy says, oh, my dad said we're, we're going to come swimming. And he goes, well, we're closed. And he's looking at me when he says it. And he says, we're closed. And, again, I'm 14. I'm not thinking anything about it. Oh, okay. So my friend says, oh, let's go up and have some lunch. So we ride our mopeds, park our mopeds, and we run up to the door to have lunch. Same guy. Meets us at the door. He's looking at me. He goes, I told you we're closed. And, he, and my friend goes, well, the pool's closed. And my dad said we could come up and have lunch. And he says, we're closed. We're not, uh, the kitchen's closed today. And he's looking at me. Oh. And, again, I'm 14. I'm not really thinking much of it, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm like, this is weird. But we got on our mopeds. We're too long home. We don't think anything of it. Get, get to my friend's house. And, and I can't remember this vividly, everything that was said, but all I know is I was in my friend's house and I heard his father on the phone giving somebody the business about what had just happened um, and treating us that way. Yeah. And it was at that moment I was like, oh, I, it was because of me. Yeah. So, so I was about 14. and that, that, So you're talking mid-80s, 1983, mm-hmm. 84. Um, and not too long ago. Not, not, not too long ago at all, yesterday. You know, in my mind, <laughs> it, the, the older I've gotten and the more conscious I've become about society and these issues, the more I realize how bad that really was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize it at the time. And, and even at that tender age, you feel powerless sometimes. Mm-hmm. Do you? Or you're not sure? Yeah, I, was, I don't know if powerless is the right word. I just was, I was just happy to go Anthony on my moped. I really wasn't thinking okay. about the yeah. issue until... And I don't even know what I heard. Maybe my friend's father wasn't yelling about the club. It sounded very clear to me that he was giving somebody the business about what we had just did. And that was when it hit me. Yeah. Mm. And then I probably thought about it for 10 minutes, and then we went and played. It kind of left my mind. Mm. So it's those experiences as you look back as an, as an older person and realizing and putting things in context that you realize what was really yeah. happening. There. It was the beginning. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. this is my community. My backyard. I'm born and raised here, and you still don't. Yep feel at times that yeah you belong 100 percent yeah absolutely absolutely and it's not an easy thing but we're, we're here it's a journey yes it's a journey it's a journey and you're doing good work yep we're all doing good work so well suzanne if you can give our listeners uh two pieces of advice i know that's extremely difficult but what advice can you give them to help them get further along it might be three pieces of advice. When I when I think about my journey around diversity, equity, inclusion, I for me it starts with awareness. So you have to push yourself to really um, build your 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 awareness about what's real and not real. Uh, and and I think only after you can really own awareness can you start to own your responsibility. So for me, it's awareness, and then you need to take responsibility. And responsibility mean, responsibility means you have to act. Mm-hmm. So. My, maybe it's one piece of advice, but to think about the journey and first and foremost, it's understanding and awareness and then it's owning your responsibility and then do something about it. Great I wish advice. it was as easy as that, but. <laughs> Great advice. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much. We've Thank enjoyed you having, having you here. And um, really appreciate your time and your candor today. Um, one of the things we said at the beginning of this podcast is that no canned answers. We just want to have a conversation. Yeah. And we really had a great conversation today. And we appreciate you. It's been so nice to get to know you. Yeah. And I'm so excited about the work that you're doing. Like This needs to be a model for other communities. Thank you. We appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Diversity Straight Up, a Corridor Business Journal podcast presented by Collins Aerospace and the City of Cedar Rapids. For more from the Corridor Business Journal, please visit CorridorBusiness.com. This episode was produced by Joe Coffey of Coffee Grande Studios.